with that, I want to jump into the text this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1, and we're going to pick it up in verse 46 and go all the way through 55. And what we're looking at today is really a song. This is not so much, um, this is not so much like a, it's not a historical narrative or anything. This is a song um, of Mary, and it's called the Magnificat, which is Latin essentially for my soul magnifies the Lord. And that's exactly what this whole thing is. This is Mary's song just after she's received the angelic news of the son that, she's, that is going to be born to her as a virgin, this miraculous pregnancy. And this is the song that she sings with her cousin Elizabeth as they really celebrate the two miraculous births that they have. Elizabeth has John the Baptist coming, and Mary now has Jesus, the Son of God. And so they come together, and this is the song that she sings in response to this beautiful news. And so I don't know how you feel about Christmas music, but how many of you guys real quick would say, yeah, Christmas music is the greatest music in the entire world? Right? Okay, we got a bunch of you guys there. Like, I'm definitely in that camp that says, you know what? I think that Christmas music should be allowed to be played no matter what time of year it is. Like, it doesn't matter if it's before Thanksgiving or not. It could be Halloween for all I care. I want to hear a little Joy to the World, a little Silent Night, some of the, the, the wonderful songs we were singing at the beginning of the service and stuff, because I think it's incredible. But um, I, I always blame my mom for this. And some say blame, some say credit. But I, I'm gonna, maybe I'll credit my mom for this love for Christmas music, because um, growing up in the Armstrong family, she was a singer. We had a grand piano in the living room, and so we'd sing. That's what we did a lot of times. And, uh, but then also, a lot of Christmases, she would get it just kind of on a whim where she would say, okay, Armstrongs, we would get together, and she's like, we're going to go caroling. And it wasn't planned out, and it wasn't like in, with a large group of people around. Like, we're talking... Like, that would have been awesome, right? Remember in years past, we would go after the Christmas Eve service and the neighborhoods around, like, we go caroling. 75 people caroling in a neighborhood is pretty awesome. When it's just your family, it's kind of lame, right? <laughs> I was like, we're like, oh, come on. We would always complain about it, too. We would complain about it. We're like, come on, that's lame. Our friends are going to see us. And she's going to like, that's the point. But uh, the great thing about mom is, you know, she loved the family time and she loved making these experiences, and she was right about that. Like, I never forgot it. We would complain in the moment, but she was right about it. And, uh, and so <laughs> it was all about the experiences. And the funny thing about my mom is she did not care about the weather. <laughs> and so, like, we're at, we're at Christmas time. It didn't matter if it was poor, if it was, like, snowing, sleeting, raining. Like, we'd be in the middle of a storm. True story, there was one time she rented a van. We all went down to the beach in the middle of a hurricane, and the news crew actually came out and filmed the family that was out at the beach. Anyway, that's a different story, but like, it did not matter the weather that was taking place. And so it would be out there pouring down rain, and there's the Armstrong family singing in the rain. And I'll never forget this one time. We went to my friend's house. He was a street over, and we get done doing our little thing, and of course, we're all embarrassed a little bit about it, and it's pouring down rain on us. And we got the little umbrellas, we got our jackets and everything, and the song's kind of done. And I think my friend was like feeling sorry for us a little bit, and he comes out, and he's like, bro, what in the world are you guys doing? Why would anyone be out here singing in the rain? It's a pretty good question, is it not? Like, why would anyone sing in the rain? I, I mean... If you're sitting in a, in a season of silence and waiting and longing or grief and upheaval and pain and difficulty, why in the world would you sing with joy? And more than that, like, what song would you even sing in a moment like that? And if you took it a step further, like, how in the world would you muster up joy in a season like that in the middle of a storm, in the middle of rain, 
enough to sing. And church, make no mistake, like Mary's song right now is taking place in the middle of the rain. That's what it is. If you remember from some of the story, she's just received the news from the angel. And the angels come in the middle of the night, and what she's going to experience in that moment, in that majestic announcement, that she is now going to be the virgin teenage mother to the divine son of God, is going to be both terrifying and exhilarating at the same time. I don't, don't mistake that. Think about naturally speaking what that would have done in you. I was talking with some friends a little while ago when they got news that they were having triplets, right, or news that they were having twins, or... News that they were having a baby when it wasn't really playing that way or anything like that. You know what I'm talking about? You're sitting there going, like, hey, this is incredible. How in the world is this going to take place? Like there's joy and there's fear at the same time. This is what's taking place in Mary. Keep in mind, this is an honor-shame culture, meaning like everything, your whole reputation is on the line with the stories that are told. And she has a story about a pregnancy that no one in the world is going to believe. Keep in mind, like, Joseph didn't even believe that story until he had an angel come and say, hey, Joe, this is what's happening, bro. Like, this is, you, you can actually re- relax. She's telling the truth about a Holy Spirit-filled conception. Like, this is actually true. And, and it, took, it took that for Joseph to believe it. And then you add that onto a teenage, normal Jewish woman who's being told she's now going to be the earthly mother to the divine son of God. Church, it's raining where Mary's living. And most of us would have freaked out and panicked, yet Mary still sings. And it's not even a song of lament and mourning or pain and difficulty and and, and all this confusion. It's a song of praise. And so what I want to do this, I want to bring us to this song. And my hope is that God will meet you here in the song of Mary through the Holy Spirit. Maybe you are in that season of raining. Maybe it's storming outside. Maybe that's coming up in 2021. And it's around the corner or something like that. How do you sing in the rain? That's what Mary's going to help us with, metaphorically speaking, of course. So let's jump into it. We're going to be in 39 today, and I'm going to take us through 55. But the story picks up like this, and it says, At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted her cousin Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child that you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me, Elizabeth says. As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. If I were preaching a different sermon today, um, I think I would preach all about friendship right here. And I would tell you all that uh, we all need Elizabeths in our life. And even more than that, we all need to be an Elizabeth to someone else in our life, if I were preaching a different sermon, of course, right? But like that's who, like Elizabeth is that friend that is able to rejoice in your rejoicing. She's that one, and by the way, not only if you're, it doesn't matter if you're a male or female in this thing, but we all need that kind of a friend, that friend who's able to see the blessing in your life and not get jealous of it, not compare, right? Not be the one-upper, the Saturday Night Live skit or anything like that, but like the person who's able to enter into your joy and celebrate because of your joy. She's not sitting here going, yeah, but my baby bump is a little bit more beautiful than yours. Uh, John the Baptist, she's not jealous over the fact that, 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 that Jesus is going to be a little higher on the totem pole than John the Baptist. She's not any of this. Like, like Elizabeth is that friend that's able to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. And if I were preaching a different sermon, I would say, we all need an Elizabeth, and you need to be an Elizabeth to someone else 
in your life. But I'm not preaching that sermon today. So we're going to keep going in 46. And this is where Mary starts to sing. And so Mary sings this and she says, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. Now, some translations are going to say, my soul magnifies the Lord. That's where the Magnificat comes from right here. It, it, it means, uh, it, it's the word megalune, and it literally means to magnify or enlarge, which is not to say that God needs enlarging, God needs magnification. He is eternal. He is the king of kings and as large as it gets. But what this is saying is that through my words and through my ability to see differently right now, my song is going to magnify his name in a way that wasn't being magnified before. And so that's what, that's what uh, she's singing about right here. This is what King David does in 2 Samuel chapter 6 when the Ark of the Covenant is returning to Jerusalem. And you remember like, like David loses his mind and joy and celebration of the fact that the presence of God is coming back to Jerusalem. Remember this, it says that he stripped off his outer garments, said that he was dancing before the Lord with all of his might, was shouting with the sound of trumpets. And you remember this scene, right? His wife is watching from the window, and she's all embarrassed because her husband's losing his mind. You know, he's going nutso right here. And, uh, and it says that she despised him in her heart. And so a little later that evening, they get back together, and David, they're having that combo, and she's like, hey, bro, you really, you really embarrassed me tonight. Uh, that was pretty terrible. And, and, and David, David goes, wait a second, wait a second. Okay, you think that that was undignified? He goes, I promise you, like, I can get a lot more undignified than that because I'm not dancing for the approval of man. I am dancing before the Lord. Like, church, like, that's what's happening with egeliasan, which is the word that means there's a joy in your soul. My soul is leaping for joy as it rejoices. There is a jo joy within my soul that results in rejoicing. That's what's taking place in Mary's song. Like there's a song that may, in my soul that makes me want to sing at the top of my lungs. And so I'm not concerned with how others are going to respond to the song that I'm singing or the way that I'm singing the song. Like I'm not concerned about that. I don't want to be a distraction, of course, but I'm not sitting there going, okay, what are my friends going to think if I'm raising my hands in praise? Or if I need to kneel a little bit and, and saying, God, I'm surrendering to you. You have total control over my life. Or if I need to dance a little bit. Maybe not run some laps around here, but maybe, maybe not, probably not. But like, I, we're not concerned about like what other people are going to be thinking because the only thing that I'm consumed with in that moment and thinking about in that moment is the beauty and the majesty of God. That is a galeasan. That's what's taking place inside the soul of Mary. There is a song rising up in her that is making her want to rejoice. And so the first thing I just want to say, yeah, church, like, like it is good that we sing even when it's raining. We know that naturally speaking, it is good that you sing even when it's raining, even if you don't want to when it's raining. It is good that your mom makes you sing in that season. We know that naturally speaking, we know how singing and praise and reactions like this work, right? Like, not only is he deserving of our praise and deserving of our song, but we know that the more that we praise, the more it keeps adding to your joy. Right? We, we know that our feelings often follow our faith nine times out of ten. Our faith drives our feelings. That's how it all works. And so walking it out in faith will bring your heart along nine times out of ten later on. That's oftentimes how it works. It's why expressions of gratitude, they often result in feelings of gratitude. It's why we do it at Thanksgiving. Right? We go around the table, and you may not be feeling it in that moment, but you express gratitude. Because when you say the words, I'm thankful for, I'm grateful for, what happens is a shift inside of your soul that makes you feel a little bit more grateful than you ever did before. Like that's what's going on. That's how the whole thing works, right? Expressions of joy make you feel a little bit more joy. Expressions of remorse help you feel a little bit more remorse. 
It's why your parents made you say the words, I'm sorry to your brother and sister. You stole that toy. You punched them, something like that. You didn't want to say you're sorry. Mom and dad said, hey, say you're sorry. Didn't make much sense in that moment. When you said the words, I'm sorry, something softened inside of your soul and made you feel not fully sorry because you're still depraved and in need of a savior, but, um, but, like you, but, but you felt a little bit more remorse in that moment, right? Expressions of remorse help you feel remorse. Expressions of joy add to your feelings and experience of joy, just like when you're at a Cowboys game and uh, you're celebrating, you're high-fiving with the people around you because, hey, they're probably going to have a top five pick in the draft this next year, and you're all excited about that. Um, and, and you express that joy, and then you're high-fiving with them, and then their joy overflows into you, and your joy adds to theirs, their joy adds to yours, and you come together and you culminate in this expression of joy that glorifies the object of that joy. William James said it well. He said, I don't sing because I'm happy. He says, I'm happy because I sing. In other words, like my expression of happiness in song, it only adds to my experience of happiness. And so, yeah, like naturally speaking, we know it is good for us to sing, even if you don't want to sing. It's good for mom to come and say, hey, we're going singing whether you want to or not. But here it is, church. It is better to sing from a place of joy and the one who compels you to sing. And this is what I love about Mary's story right here. She's not just singing out of obligation. She's not just singing out of discipline. She's not just singing because somebody else is making her sing a song because they drug them to church on a Sunday morning. She is singing because she knows the one who compels her to sing. That's the beauty of the song. It is full of faith and theology and this relationship with God that is fueling an honest expression of faith. And then, of course, it's going to circle back around later on and it's going to add to the strength of her faith and sustain her for the rest of her days. I mean, church, look at this song. Don't, do not miss the beautiful theology that Mary is teaching us in this song. Verse 46, she's gonna sing, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. That, this is who God is, right? She's not just singing about the existence of God or a generic God or something like that. She's going, this is the Lord, my curion, the one who's got total and complete authority, not over the ends of the earth, but total and complete authority over all of my life. This is the one who is Lord of my life. She continues and says, my spirit rejoices in not only God, it's not just generic God, but, but God my Savior. This is the one who came to save my soul. In other words, even though there was an immaculate conception, Mary understands my life still needed to be saved. Even though there was an immaculate, I'm not perfect, I'm not holy. There's a difference between Mary and Jesus, and she's going, I still understand Given my blessed circumstances and given the place where I may be in God's favor in my life, I still need to be saved. It's why she's saying she knows who God is. Uh, verse 48, she continues and says, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, she says, she sings, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done good things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. And so she talks about two different words that describe God here, holy and merciful, that are not typically words that go hand in hand in describing God. You have to understand, ancient first century gods, Roman gods, Greek gods, they were one or the other. If you were a holy God, it means you were distant and you were not allowed to be around unholy mankind. If you were a merciful God, that it means that you were around humanity here, but you weren't holy and you were, you were um, permissive of whatever humanity wanted to do. 
You didn't have both of them working together. And Mary's pulling back on her theology going, I know who this God is. He's not only holy, but he's merciful too. This is who he is. And these words don't go together very often. You have to understand, church, like holiness is very, very black and white. You're either holy or you're not holy. And what we know about holiness is holy can have absolutely nothing to do with unholy. That's why you never see a bride throwing the football with the groomsmen before her wedding in her white wedding gown. Right? It's, a, it's supposed to uh, resemble purity and holiness and beauty. You, you would never go out there and muck it up with mud and dirt and things like that. You wouldn't go into a chapel, a beautiful, ornate cathedral or something like that, and start screaming or yelling or throwing mud around or have a food fight or something like that. Like, holy can have absolutely nothing to do with holy. And so here it is, church. Like, the rules of holy, they're not good news for people who are not holy. Praise God Almighty that he's not just holy. Praise God Almighty that this holy God is also merciful in all of his ways. Like that's why she's singing this God who spoke to Moses and said, Moses, take off your sandals because you're now standing on holy ground. This God who gave us the book of Leviticus, an entire book of blood and sacrificial systems so that broken, unholy humanity could be reconciled and made right with a holy God. Remember this thing in the old covenant? It was just law after law after law, detail after detail after law, detail, so that the two could be reconciled together. That holy God is also filled with mercy, which is why she's singing. She's sitting here going, the same holy God who did all that is now coming to us, coming to humanity through me in my womb because of his great mercy. In other words, like he's not coming to wipe us all out because of our impurity. Like he's coming in holiness, which is again terrifying to the unholy, but he's also coming in mercy, which gives me reason to sing. Church, this is what's driving her song, and we have to understand it is all coming together in this beautiful song. I know who he is. I know the theology that drives this song is what she's singing. She's looking at this announcement going like, even with an immaculate conception, I know that my soul needs saving. I know that my life needs saving. And this is exactly who's sitting here in the womb, the Son of God, the promised King of all kings, Emmanuel, God with us, divine in nature, but perfectly human at the exact same time. My Lord and my Savior, I magnify his name. And so church, do not miss that her theology is driving her song. Don't miss that. Don't gloss through this, this Advent text and miss the incredible theology that is allowing Mary to sing. And this is the opportunity that's before you and I, every single Advent when we look at Mary's song, is that we can allow our theology about God, our knowledge about God, our understanding about who he is to drive our song in the middle of the rain. Like that's the opportunity to like, rain doesn't matter as much if you're prepared for it. We understand that, right? Like rain is not terrifying if you know that it's coming. Last week, I mean, it was pouring at the beginning of the week. It didn't matter. Why? I have an app on my phone saying, hey, guess what? There's rain coming. Put on your rain jacket. Get an umbrella. Like, we knew it was coming. Mary is prepared for this rain, this season that she's walking in right here. She knows the theology of God. She studied it very well. She's not just a 16-year-old girl that's come around and just participated in some things. She knows the truth of God, God's word, and she is allowing her theology to drive her song. Don't miss this connections. Like over and over again, this entire song is referenced by other passages in the Old Testament, which Mary knows, which are leading her to sing in this moment. But she's singing about his mercy, extending to those who fear him from one generation to the next. Why? Because it's Psalm 103, 17, when the psalmist also sings 
and leads the nation of Israel in this song, which says, from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children. Church, she's singing the song that her people have been singing for ages, that the psalmist wrote about a thousand years prior, the truth of God's word. She knows it, and she's prepared for the rain. She's singing about his holiness and how the mighty one has done great things because, again, Psalm 111, 9 writes this and sings this. He provided redemption for his people. He ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. This isn't the first time these words, she's had to search for words. What I'm trying to say is these words are already on her heart and she's prepared for this season. The whole thing is filled with theology that's connected to the Old Testament word of God. 51 and 52, she sings, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. Where did any of these things take place? Genesis chapter 11, the Tower, tower of Babel, 11, 8. The Lord scattered them from there over all the earth. They stopped building the city. Why? Because they are proud and haughty in spirit. Right? When did he bring down rulers? Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. He's demented and deranged at the end of his days. This is what God does. This is, the, this is the testimony of the Old Testament, which Mary is pulling from in the middle of this song. Verse 53, she sings, he has filled the hungry with good things, and he sent the rich away empty. It's a direct reference, Psalm 107.9. He says, he satisfies the thirsty, and he fills the hungry with good things. Church, this is what God does. Physically, literally, as he's bringing the Israelites out of the bondage of slavery, they cross the Red Sea, they're wandering in the wilderness. He literally and physically provides for the hungry with literal physical food. Spiritually speaking, metaphorically speaking, he comes and he fills the spiritually hungry, the spiritually thirsty, those who will come to him with good things, and he brings satisfaction to their soul. This is what God does. Same thing in 54 and 55. He has helped to serve in Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as promised to our ancestors, Psalm 98, 3, when he says he remembered his mercy and his faithfulness to Israel and all the ends of the earth. They have seen the salvation of our God. Point of the matter is, church, her theology drives her song. And this is the opportunity that's before you and me today. Your circumstances do not have to sing your song. Church, your circumstances do not have to sing your song. Your theology can speak to your circumstances and say, hey, I know that it's raining outside right now, but guess what? I know the God who created the rain. I know who he is. Like, I know that he's magnificent. I know that he's the one who calms the storms. Like, I know that he speaks and, and his word has power and authority and all these different things. Your circumstances don't have to sing your song. I'll never forget years ago when I was like, when I was, uh, it was probably the elementary years, but I think I've told you before, my mother was a, a Bible study fellowship teaching leader for about 20 years. And I grew up in that home. BSF was a great ministry, I benefited a lot from it and uh, very grateful for that. But what that means is from every, every now and then she would have a lot of her teaching leaders over to our home uh, for dinner and different things like that. And there's one night that, uh, a lot of her teaching leaders were over, and they were kind of rehashing the past semester. They were doing a big study on the book of Romans, which, again, one of my favorite books ever, uh, which is why we were preaching before, through it before Advent. But they were debriefing over the semester. And the question that she asked them, hey, I'd love for you guys to go around and just talk about what God has taught you this past semester as you've been studying Romans. And so different ladies are going around, and they're just saying, you know what? I, I was wowed by the righteousness of God. I was wowed by how sinful humanity was and God's love breaking through that barrier. Like they just kind of went around and did 
all these different statements. It's a lot of fun to listen to those different things. And uh, I'll tell you what, there's one woman that stood up and, and she said this, and I love what she had to say. She goes, this is a semester that God has taught me to worship. And it's happened in probably the most difficult season of marriage that I've ever walked in in our life. As many of you know, this past year was the most, most difficult year of marriage that we've ever had. And she kind of explained some of these things, but she goes, you know, God met me in his word. And I've never been in awe of God and able to worship like, worship like this before as I have been in this semester studying the book of Romans. And I didn't really understand it at that time. Like, how in the world do you, do you study the word of God, study a book like Romans, and why would worship be brought into that? As a kid, I'm thinking, hey, worship is just singing. Worship is, is something like that. And I didn't really understand how it all came together, but I understand it now. Church, here, here, here it is. Like, if your theology about God is able to intersect with your biography, meaning where you are in life and, and your personal story, if your theology about God is able to intersect with your biography, it will all culminate in a beautiful doxology, which is a song of praise to the Lord. That's what she's saying right here. It's exactly what's taking place in Mary. Like, don't, I'm going to say that again. If your theology about God can intersect with your biography, where you are in life, who you are, it will culminate in a beautiful doxology of praise to the Lord. Church, it's exactly what's taking place with Mary. Like it's not just books and it's not just knowledge about God. That knowledge about God is not just that he's holy and that he's other than and that he's far away and that he's distant or any of these things. It's a theology of God that brings him near into my biography, into my story, in the middle of this reign, and it all culminates in this beautiful doxology that makes her want to sing. Church, I promise you, we are not paying attention to this song unless the entire thing comes together. Like, we're not singing about just this distant, holy Grecian God or something like that unless it comes in and Mary is overwhelmed at the implications that this is the Savior of the world that is being born in my womb and coming out, that I'm going to be the earthly mother to, the Savior of humanity, God in the flesh, coming to us, theology with theology with biography coming together in doxology. That's the beauty of this song that's going on right here. And so I want you to notice that there is incredible theology all over this song, but it's a theology that makes her understand and realize, again, that he's deeply, deeply personal. He, again, he's not just holy and other than, he is deeply personal. Like he's not just Lord and Savior, but, but he's my Lord and Savior. Notice the personal things that she's saying. Like he's my Lord and Savior. He's not just God. He's not just yours, but he's mine out here. Like it's personal for her. Verse 48, she says, he has, been, he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. In other words, she is singing about the fact that God is a God who pays attention to your life. God is a God who not just spoke the world into existence, but numbered the hairs upon your head who knew you, to get, knew you when you were in your mother's womb, who ordained your days, gave you great works for you to walk in. He's a personal God. He knows her, everything there is to know about her. He knows her past. He knows her present. He knows her future. He knows her thinking. He knows her doing. He knows her motivations. He knows everything about her. And what she's saying is, even in my humility and low being, you still saw me, God. You still, you, you, you knew me. You still looked upon me in this lowly and humble estate and you saw me, church. Like that's what it means that he's deeply personal. It's the John Wesley testimony where he acknowledges that for years, this great founder of the faith, this not founder of the faith, but 
father of the faith, father of the church early on. Founder of Method, uh, the Methodist Church in a lot of ways. And he was a famous evangelist and been talks about for years. I would go around preaching the gospel and, and sharing the gospel with people, calling people to repent, calling people to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes, I did that for years and years and years before I realized that it was my sin that he was dying for upon the cross. That it wasn't just the sins of humanity. That it wasn't just your sins. That it wasn't just my parents' sins. That it was my sin that it was my face that he was thinking about upon that cross as he was drawing near to me through his sacrifice and through his subsequent resurrection. It was years that I was preaching all about God before I finally knew the God who I was preaching about. And church, like, that's the question that's on the church. Like, is that how it is for you? Is that how it is for you? Are we talking about a God that you don't personally know? Are we singing a God, about a God that you've never worshiped or enjoyed? I mean, he's personal. This whole thing, this is my Lord, this is my Savior, is the Advent story, Emmanuel, God who took on flesh to come and to be with us, who saw me in my lowly, humble estate and esteemed me worthy of taking on flesh and leaving the comforts of heaven so that I could be redeemed to him again through his one and only beloved son, that we can know the heart of a father who's not just holy, but he's also merciful. And he sees you in the rain. And he comes to you in the rain and he draws you near because of his incredible mercy. Church, that is the story of Advent and that is the reason that she's singing. Her theology about God is coming together with her biography and it is culminating in a beautiful doxology that has her singing until the end. And we would not be paying attention to this song unless it was all working together. There's an old hymn that we used to sing. I grew up in the Presbyterian church and like I said earlier, mom used to have the hymnal and we would do it in the living room, but there's an old hymn, it's called, uh, How Can I Keep From Singing? I mean, anybody in here familiar with it? We had a few people in the first, you know what I'm talking about, okay. Um, an old hymn, it's not very catchy, which is probably why we still don't sing it today or anything, but uh, there's a verse in this song that I absolutely love and I think it's so profound. But it goes like this, it says, what though my joys and comforts die? In other words, like what if my joy and my comforts go away? The Lord my Savior liveth. What though the darkness gather around, songs in the night he giveth. No storm can shake my inmost calm, while to that refuge I'm clinging. Since Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, how can I keep from singing? Like that's how you sing in the rain. You know the God. You know the God who gives you a song in the night. Yeah, you, you know the God who, who intersects with your biography, who's not just holy, but in his mercy, he draws near to you. And it culminates in this beautiful song, resulting in the praise and glory of his name and in your continued faith in the middle of these seasons of rain. Church, the question I have to ask you today is like, do you know who he is? Is it personal for you? Is it personal with you? Like, do you know, as your theology come together with your biography, or is it only theology at this point in time? Is it only ambiguity? Is it only generic beliefs in, yeah, I think that there's a God? Or has that understanding, that rich understanding of God drawn near in your biography and made you want to sing? Church, that's the question. Has it become personal to you? 
I'll tell you, this is the prayer that we pray for our students all the time. This is the prayer that I pray for our students all the time, that God would not just get a hold of their heart and their life back there in their early years of elementary ministry. We know the stats. We know that most people come to faith early on in life. Like We know how that all works out, but I pray every single day, God, would you do a work where you solidify the faith. Holy Spirit, would you seal them into the day of salvation? But then also that, would, would their faith not just be their parents' faith? Would your faith be your own faith? That at some point in time, that there's gonna be this, hey, yeah, I came to faith early on, but as I grew in understanding and grew in maturity and I came to start thinking in my own life, I started to understand like, he's not just my parents' God, he's my God too. And this is how I pray, this is how we always pray for our students here, that God would get a hold of your affections, that he would speak to your soul, that you would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's not just your parents, God. He's not just everybody else. He's not just the churches. He's not what you see on TV. He's not the people that you esteem and that you look up to. He's not the crazy people that you say, I want nothing to do with them. Like that he's your God. And that you understand that, that it was your sin he was dying for on that cross. And it was your face that he saw as he was weeping and as, as he was laying down his life for the flourishing of the church. That, it, that there was this personal moment. That's how we pray. Church, do you know him in a personal way? Have you ever had that time? One of the questions I like to ask our worship team a number of years ago, we had him in our living room. And I always like to ask this of people that were maybe about to hire or bring on a staff or something like that. But do you remember when your singing became worship? Because you know the difference. Do you remember when your quiet time became worshipful? When reading Romans was more than just about a study that it came alive in your soul and it began speaking to who you are when your theology intersected with your biography and it all culminated in this beautiful doxology that you're singing today. That's what I wanna know. Don't tell me about an experience that you had when you were a kid just because, hey, it was culturally easy to engage in. Everybody else in my family was a Christian, so I'm a Christian. Everyone else in my school was a Christian. Most people in America say, hey, I'm a Christian. I'm not talking about that. Has it become personal for you? Husbands, I want to ask you this question. Is it personal for you or is it just your wife's faith? I know that you are drawn to it in the early years. And I know that's a thing that women like to do, right? Like, no. Is it personal to you? Who is he to you? Do you know him as Lord and Savior of my wife, my family, and those? It's good for them. Or do you know him as, no, 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 this is my God. This is my Savior. My soul is going to magnify his name. Has it become personal to you? This is who he is, church. It's not just, he's not just holy. And he's not just other than and distinct and out there. He is merciful and he is full of love and he is personal and he knit you together in your mother's womb. He numbered the hairs upon your head. He numbered your days and he did it all to draw you near to him. That's who God is, Emmanuel. God with us in the flesh, in Mary's womb, the theology of God intersecting with the biography and culminating in this beautiful doxology that we're still talking about and singing about to this day. That is the question that is for you. Has it become personal? Do you know who he is? And has it all culminated in this beautiful song today or is that just for other people that are out there that get caught up in those kinds of things? Lee Strobel is a, um, many of you guys know him as a great apologist. He's the one who wrote um, 
the case for Christ, the case for faith, and the case for whatever else. But um, <laughs> a lot of those kinds of books, I guess, sells pretty well. But anyway, awesome books. But many of you may not know that in his early years, he spent a number of his adult years as a skeptical atheist, um, questioning everything about God, which is why his books today are so powerful. Um, but he had a job early on working for the Chicago Tribune as a journalist. And he talks about, he writes about in one of his books, this time, this assignment that he had to go into the inner city and talk about how families celebrate Christmas and honor Christmas when they have pretty much nothing physically or materially or anything like that. And he writes about this story. He says, this is a moment that God got a hold of my heart as a skeptical atheist. But he said, I went into this high-rise condo apartment building in the middle of uh, downtown. And he goes, there's a lot of different ways that families were celebrating, but there's one family that stuck, stuck out to me. I came into their apartment to interview them. And he had the experience that many of you guys have had today. You come into an apartment and there's no couch. There's no table. There's no chairs. You go into the bedroom and there's a blanket in a the corner. There's an old stained pillow out there. And this family had literally nothing of possessions, nothing noteworthy to write home about. They had one little plaque, the generic, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, hung on a wall. And he says this family had absolutely nothing, but they did have faith. And with it, an incredible amount of joy, which I wasn't able to account for. And he writes about it in his own words. He says this, I continued to wrestle with the irony of the situation. Here was a family that had nothing but faith, and yet they seemed happy and satisfied. I had everything that I needed materially, but I lacked faith. I did not know God. And inside, I felt as empty and barren as their apartment. Church, that's the difference of knowing about God and knowing that he's personal and who he is. Church, has your theology intersected with your biography? And has it culminated in a doxology that you are still singing today? Church, like that's how you survive in the rain. That's how you sing in the rain. It all comes together and you understand that he's not just out there. He sees you this season. He sees you in the middle of your pain, in the middle of your shame, he knows your past, and he sees it, and he still decided to come to you. He sees your present and your last night. He sees your this morning on the car right here, and he still decided to come to you. He knows your future, all of your failures, all of your successes, and he says, I still come to you. Call me blessed, Mary sings, because I know the favor of God. Do you know him in that way? Has your theology intersected with your biography, and has it culminated in a beautiful doxology? That is my hope and my prayer for us today, that you would allow these things to come together, to give you a song to sing, even in the rain. Maybe you're there today. Maybe that rain is coming in 2021. Maybe it's years away. Maybe you've got an Elizabeth in your life, and they're in the middle of that rain, and they need you to be an Elizabeth in their life. Will you allow it to all come together and give you a song to sing? Father, we, get, we do love you, God. I pray for the person that came in today and they're in the middle of that rain. They weren't prepared for it. They didn't know it was coming. It stings and it hurts. It feels isolating and lonely. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would bring together this narrative 
inside of their soul, that everything that they know about you, God, I pray that it would intersect with the personal details of their life. God, that they would see you're not just holy, you're merciful, you're the God who came to be with them. Jesus, I pray that their singing would turn into worship, that you would give them that beautiful doxology that they would still be singing today. Holy Spirit, we need you to come and to do that, and I pray that you would meet someone in the middle of that place. Again, not just for their individual joy, but for the praise and for the glory of your name. God, we recognize when you're glorified, joy spreads. It's for our good. We long for you to be glorified. You're worthy of it all, Lord Jesus. When we were lost and dead in our sins, you didn't stay away, God. When holy could have nothing to do with unholy, it wasn't good enough for you. You were filled with mercy and compassion. And so you move toward us in the giving of your son, Jesus. And for that, God, we say thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. For the people that are watching online that have never known you in a personal way, I want to speak to you right now and just let you know that the word of God says that it is simple to come to him in genuine faith. And if you do, if you come to him in genuine faith today, you can have life now and for all of eternity. If you'll confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord. Believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead. You come to him in genuine, repentant faith. You will have life now and for all of eternity. Maybe you're watching online today. You've never known him in that way. You can come to him and say, Jesus, would you come and save me today? I recognize that you are my Lord, my Savior. This is what's true, not just out there, but for me as well. You come to him in genuine faith. You can cross from death into life. You can have this relationship with God now and for all of eternity, and he can give you a song to sing no matter the circumstances that you're in today. God, we love you. We praise you. We say thank you today. We remember you this season. Thank you for being born of a virgin to die for us. It's in Jesus' mighty and holy name that we pray. Amen and amen.